Well, it is indeed nice to be with you again today, especially as we begin a new year. So glad to be able to share that with you. I would like for you today to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. This will be our main passage, but we're also going to turn to another passage today. But we're going to start here in Matthew. I've titled this message, Herod's Wake. Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When the When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and the mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more.
Some of our most popular literary works come from individuals who have experienced the First World War, World War I. For example, in the French trenches, J.R.R. Tolkien filled up notebook after notebook of what later became the Lord of the Rings with its horrific descriptions of the land of Mordor where the dark shadows lie. Also, people who fought during World War I, C.S. Lewis also fought in the trenches. Uh, Ernest Hemingway and E.E. E. Cummings were ambulance drivers during World War I. And while William Butler Yeats did not experience the battlefield firsthand, his poem, which is in your bulletin in the back there, his poem, Second Coming, was inspired by events of the war and how it ravaged Europe. Yeats' poem suggests that something had changed in the world, that a new epoch had arrived. Uh, the poem is not long, and so I would like to share it with you, but I want you to note something as I read it to you. Notice the apocalyptic imagery, which includes a sense of confusion and disorder. And toward the end, there's this great stone image, a sphinx, that awakens from centuries of sleep and then it crouches like a cat ready to pounce on its prey. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, and things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere. The ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, and the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are these words out when a vast image of the Espiritus Monday troubles my sight somewhere in sands of desert. A shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs while all about its real shadows of the indignant desert birds, the darkness drops again. But now I know that 20 centuries of sleep, of stony sleep, were vexed to nightmare as by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem, to be born. The most remarkable part of this poem is the beast 
its hour come round at last, slouching toward Bethlehem to be born. And the image of the beast points to King Herod that we just read about, who turns and makes a strike against the newborn king in a lowly manger. Now, the story of King Herod, as horrible as it is, has a much wider repercussion than you might think, what I'm calling Herod's wake. It's a story, actually, that echoes all the way back to Genesis. And it reverberates forward all the way to the ending of the world. What's been labeled as the slaughter of the innocents is really just one slice of a very large pie of biblical history. And so I do want to begin here in Matthew as Herod is planning to snuff out his rival. But then I want us to zoom out and I want us to take a look at a bigger picture of what's really going on here. Because it's something that's cosmic in scope. And not only that, it concerns you. Sometimes it's good to hear a big picture sermon. And I want you to ask yourself, where do I fit? into this story. Hopefully you'll do that today. We're going, to consider, we're going to consider two things, really. First, King Herod and the baby king. The baby king rocking in a cradle. And then we're going to turn over to another passage in John's revelation, his heavenly vision. And we're going to look at the big picture. Think of this as a little bit like Dickens' Christmas Carol. We're going to consider things past, things present, and things in the future. But first, King Herod and a baby king and a rocking cradle. Now, notice with me in verse 4 in the passage that we just read. You'll notice that when Herod hears the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews, The Bible says that he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Now, this progression is very important. First, Herod was troubled, and then all Jerusalem was troubled. But this needs some explaining. First, understand that Herod was not a Jew. He was an Edomite, which is a descendant of Esau. Herod is king of the Jews only by title because his father was appointed governor of Judea by Julius Caesar. Do you remember him from high school at to Brute? Well, after Caesar was assassinated by the Roman Senate, Mark Anthony and Marcus Lepetus, and a guy by the name of Octavian, became the three amigos who ruled Rome. Octavian later became Caesar Augustus, 
You might remember him as the Roman emperor who made a decree that all the world should be taxed in the Christmas story. Anyway, after Marcus Lepetus had been banished from power and after Mark Anthony and Cleopatra committed suicide together, Herod suddenly switches his loyalty over to Augustus because he's one of these guys. Now, Herod was known for his great public works. He built the Jews a Roman-style amphitheater where they could go and watch gladiators hack each other to death. Now, the Jews really didn't really appreciate this very much. In fact, they said it was corrupting to the youth. So what did Herod do? He He refurbished the temple in Jerusalem, which was a better gesture. But then again, he put a statue in the other temple at Samaria. So he wasn't all that great. One commentator describes Herod as competent, crafty, and cruel. So what made Herod cruel? Well, for one thing, he married a woman from a very prominent Jewish family. This family had descendants going all the way to the Maccabees. Remember the Maccabees? They're the ones who helped the Jews defeat the Greek tyrants. But the problem was that the popularity of his wife meant that her blood kin would always be a potential political rival. And so this is why Herod had his wife's grandfather executed. In fact, any popular Jewish leader was considered to be a rival with Herod. His popular Jewish wife had a brother who was made high priest. Let me tell you what they did to him. Uh, When this high priest became popular, what they did they, uh, Herod invited him to a little swimming party, and he coaxed him into the river for some fun splashing, and then he had his cronies hold his head under the water until he drowned. This is Herod. And so Herod just passed off the incident as an accident. The historian Josephus says that afterward that Herod, Herod provided a magnificent funeral, and he wept many tears. Well, these kinds of little incidents did did not always square with the Roman officials who were over Herod, and so they would call him in to see what was going on. And on two of these occasions, he told his henchmen, if I don't come back, I want you to just kill my wife. And while you're at it, kill her mother too. Well, this sort of thing doesn't sit well for a king's wife, especially if you're only one among ten other wives. And so when he comes back from one of these trips, he hears rumor that his wife has had an affair with one of his cronies. And after he executes the guy, he then conducts a mock trial for his wife, and then he puts her to death, and then he puts her mother to death, and then he puts his two sons to death. No wonder William 
Hendrickson says Herod's cruelty was nourished by his overgrown egoism and by his morbid distrust of anyone who might aspire to replace him on the throne. He says Herod knew many of the Jews hated him, that they regarded him as an instrument used by a foreign power to keep them under bondage, and that they thoroughly understood that his Jewishness was a sham, and in his heart and mind he was a pagan. Now, hopefully, you'll understand a little bit better by hearing Herod's background that you'll understand that when the wise men arrive on the scene and they ask, where is this newborn king of the Jews? That the people knew all heck was about to break out. Now, I find it very interesting that the Jewish leaders, probably all of the Sanhedrin, knew about the prophecy of where the Messiah was going to be born, in Bethlehem. That tells me that there was a buzz about the Messiah in Palestine before before he was born. And so we find in verse 16... Here in Matthew chapter 2, the king Herod sets out to kill all the male children in Bethlehem and in the surrounding region that that were two years old and younger. Sometimes we read about the slaughter of the innocents. And this morning in Sunday school, we were talking about who were the first Christian martyrs. Was it, was it Stephen? Was it James? Who was it? Well, did you know that early, the early church called these children in Bethlehem that were slaughtered some, the, the first Christian martyrs? While the, while the whole episode closes... In these tragic words in verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Ramah stands for the land of Israel and Rachel stands for the people of Israel. Now, it would be easy for us to just pass Herod off as a politically paranoid maniac. But if we do that, we're missing the larger story of what's going on here. It's a story that has much wider repercussions. And so, in order to get that, I want you now to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. And here we find the bigger story. Revelation chapter 12, and we'll just start beginning to read in verse 1. And I'm just going to right now read four verses. Revelation 12, beginning with verse 1. 
And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. John's Revelation, also called John's Apocalypse, is known for its symbolism and its imagery. In fact, it's best understood as a widening of the prophecy found in the the book of Daniel, the prophecies there. There we learn about the kingdoms of the world and how they are interrupted by God's kingdom and by Jesus Christ, who is called the Son of Man. Now here in Revelation chapter 12, there are three important characters. There's the woman, there's the child, and there's the dragon. I don't know if you know this, but these are, these are very common symbols, especially ancient symbols. They're actually found in pagan mythology. But by employing them in the Christian story, John is really saying that Jesus Christ, not an earthly king, not a Roman emperor, not pagan gods, but Jesus Christ is the ultimate ruler of the universe. The woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars there in verse 1 is best seen as the Old Testament saints with Mary acting as their representative. The woman is pregnant with child and is crying out in birth pains in verse 2. And then we know that the child then would be none other than who? None other than Jesus Christ. And then there's the dragon. Who's the dragon? Well, the dragon is Satan, who is identified in the Bible as the ruler of this present world since man fell. Notice that the dragon's tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth, verse 4. And this is a reference to Lucifer's fall, the greatest of all angelic beings who rebelled against God and his angels. Concerning this act, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Perhaps we don't say enough about Satan from the pulpit these days. But as the Apostle Paul tells us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. These are cosmic powers that are real forces in the world. And although we don't see them with our eyes, they constitute spiritual realities that are really there. Notice now in Revelation 12, the rest of verse 4 brings us to the nativity and the account of Herod that we have already read about. The rest of verse 4 says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when her child, when she bore her child, he might devour it. Please burn this image into your mind. The great dragon standing over the woman who is about to give birth to a child. In fact, this is the same image in Yeats' poem. And what rough beast, it's our come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. The picture of the slouching beast helps us understand the history of the world. It's not just Herod's little tirade in 5 B.C. But much of what has happened in the past, what's happening now, and what's going to happen in the future, a future that you're in. So concerning the past, just transport yourself a moment all the way back to the garden in Genesis as the first two human beings stand there with their heads lowered in shame, and God turns to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Enmity. What is that? It means perpetual opposition. Intense hostility. Enemies forever. Between the offspring of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Wait a minute. How can Satan have seed since he is an angelic being? Well, quite simply, the hostility that God is talking about is between the redeemed and the unredeemed. This is a very old story. And we can trace it all the way back through time. This is a story of the cat-like sphinx raised up on her haunches 
ready to pounce on its prey. In the first four verses of Revelation 12, the prey is the promised one, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. But also, the rough beast crouches as Cain leans over his brother Abel and his blood soaks into the ground. The rough beast crouches as the king of Egypt assembles the midwives in the land of Goshen and says, when you see the Hebrew women on their sitting stools, if it's a son, you shall kill it. The rough beast crouches when the Pharaoh stands before his generals and shouts, Ready my chariot so we can pursue the Hebrews into the sea. And the rough beast crouches as Haman whispers into the ear of the king of Persia, let us make an end to all of the Jews. And the rough beast Crouches as Herod hears news of the newborn king in a Bethlehem manger. But let's return to John's image once again because something happens, something changes. A baby is born, and the baby becomes a man. And the baby grows up, and the man goes to a cross, and the man is resurrected from the dead. So the rough beast is no longer crouching over the cradle anymore. Instead, dear brother, instead, dear sister, he's crouching over you. Picking up at verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now notice what happens to the woman in verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, at this point, I must show my, eschatolo esch uh, my eschatological hand for just a moment. I don't know exactly what First Perez holds to in regards to eschatology. I take the position that these days represent a period of time between Christ's resurrection and his second advent or his second coming. In other words, it refers to the church age. And you'll notice the cosmic repercussions of Christ's resurrection picking up at verse 7. 
Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, and he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Well, this is the crushing of the head of the serpent in Genesis 3, 15. Now, notice what happens after that, the rejoicing in heaven. And I heard a loud voice picking up at verse 10 in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the peace and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they, who's they? Well, the Old Testament saints. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Because Jesus came from Mary in the Jewish uh, family. And by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And so these verses mark a very significant turn in the plan of redemptive history. But I want to tell you something. Even after that, Satan has not gone away yet. Rather, he's like a wounded bear. What's a wounded bear like? And this is why we find in the latter half of verse 12 these words, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. I don't know about you, but when I hear the apostles' words in 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2.7, for the mystery of lawlessness or the mystery of iniquity is already at work. Think about that. It's already at work. In other words, the beast is crouching again. And so the rest of The rest of Revelation chapter 12 describes the persecution of the woman's children, which are the saints during the church age. But the rough beast is no longer slouching over the rocking cradle in Bethlehem. Rather, Christ has, has thrown Satan down. The head of the serpent has been crushed. Rather now, the Bible says here that he stoops over the woman's children. Verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now as we bring this to a close, I I want to end with a sober warning. It seems to me that history is moving toward a crescendo. 
that the implications of Satan knowing that his time is short means that he will ratchet up his exploits. Especially toward the saints. And from, I, from what I gather, this is the tenor of Scripture. I, I don't know, but perhaps this is what Yates had in mind when he says, a blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence has been drowned. Yates must have been thinking as he looked out upon those scarred battlefields during the First World War, First World War he must have been thinking, is this what the end of the world looks like? Again, Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way for that day, that is the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first or the apostasia, a falling away, unless it comes first. And then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who the Bible says opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God. Get the order. As the Lord returns, nears. First, there's going to be a great falling away. Second, the man of sin is going to be revealed. He's called the it's called the little horn with the big mouth speaking blasphemies in the book of Daniel. It's called the Antichrist in the New Testament. Third, the Lord will return. And Satan and his demons and those who are following him, the unredeemed, will be judged. What really scares me about all of this is that word apostasia because you see a falling away. Apostasy is not just about people falling away. It's about God's people falling away as the Lord's time nears. In fact, Paul says that the lawlessness one is by the activity of Satan and will be accompanied by a wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth. The idea, if you can imagine it, is a hand, which is Satan, and a glove, which is a man. And the hand goes inside of the glove. And then imagine that gloved hand now reaching out to conquer and deceive and destroy. Can you see that picture? The darkness drops again, but I now know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed a nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Well, I wish this were a happy sermon. But sometimes we need a sober sermon. But there is a silver lining to these verses. 
Just go to the end of John's revelation and you'll find out how it ends. Jesus wins. And so going back to the question, where are you in this story? Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. What part of the story do you belong? Let's pray. Father, take, help us to take these words from Scripture to heart. Sobering words. And as we turn now to the beginning of a new year, Help us to realize the severity and the cosmic scope of our eternal souls and how we deal with other people, how we raise our children, how we do the work of the church. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me as we proclaim God's word, professing our faith,